What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I am here with my co-host Dave, Martin, Son, and Dave. What an episode we got for the people today, huh? Yeah, man. Jam-packed, like always. Jam-packed. We got IP, big and small. We got music, TV, movies, news. So before we jump right into it, hit that subscribe button if you're on our YouTube page. If you're listening on iTunes, also subscribe and give us a five-star rating and review. And then if you go to our SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, you can find us any way you want to be listening to us. We appreciate all the feedback. Also follow our Twitter at NostalgiaPod. So (laughs) we got a lot to talk about. So I guess we'll start with one big IP and finish with another. Star Wars Celebration was this past weekend. A lot of news came out of there. Probably the biggest piece of news. The new title and trailer. For Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Eh, 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 eh. That was that was my horrible Palpatine laugh. <laughs> yeah, man, what did you think of the title and the trailer? Definitely didn't see the title coming, like most people. The initial leak was it'll be called Will of the Force, but like Star Wars leaks are never accurate. The Rise of Skywalker, something very on the nose, yeah. and obviously it, it opens up a lot of questions. And of course, you reference the return of Emperor Palpatine with the laugh at the end of the trailer and between returning to another touchstone like Palpatine as well as Lando, which we did know was coming. And then this title, there's a lot of questions about uh, what J.J. and Kathleen Kennedy have in store for ending the sequel trilogy, wrapping up this nine-movie Skywalker saga. You know, they're going to move on from this era, this family, with the Benioff and Weiss series and the Ryan Johnson series to come. So the questions, though, that come up from the title, I think, are more pointed than we were expecting because I think you can take it any way you want regarding how much, quote, retconning is going to happen from The Last Jedi, namely Rey's parentage not mattering, the death of the Supreme Leader Snoke, things like that. But I thought the trailer, again, just a teaser, not, not a whole lot in there. Looks really cool. Ray doing that anime shit with the backflip and slow-mo. They just introduced slow-mo for the first time in Last Jedi, so it's cool to see that again. Mad Max Fury Poe looked cool, and yeah. that shot leading up to the crash Death Star, Death Star 2, some nuclear winner, Endor Moon, man, that, that looks really cool. So I'm excited, but I'm, I mean, I was already in the bag for it. What did you think? The hype level is on 100 million trillion at this point. One of the best trailers I can remember seeing where just like everything about it drew me in and I thought it was interesting. The only two that I think compared to it for me are Black Panther and Us, which I thought those two trailers also were just captivating. The style of it is phenomenal. You know, people were putting comparisons up to North by Northwest, which is very high praise, especially for a Star Wars movie. All the little Easter eggs in the trailer were really exciting. I mean, I'm just really excited about it. I felt the title was more of a shot. I don't know if it was a shot necessarily, but seemed to be a little bit like Ryan Johnson's been saying a lot of stuff, but we're going to maybe not all of it is true. Backtrack just a little bit here. And we, we can't really tell too much. I mean, Carrie Fisher's passing. I think they're going to have to handle things very tastefully and, and probably draw Luke in a little bit more than maybe they expected to. So it could be alluding to a lot of different things. But overall, just the style choices and the way it looks, I, I could see this being, the I think, the first Star Wars movie nominated for Best Picture. It's, it certainly looks like it has all the makings of it right now. And if it lands the ship, so to speak, I, I couldn't see why it wouldn't be. Probably my favorite part was just seeing Kylo Ren just like, suplexing dudes in the forest just for, just yeah. for shits and giggles. Adam Driver, man, we're going to talk, talk about him later, but dude's just a stud. The thing is, with, with the title, and people are taking this how they want to go, I really don't think they're going to retcon as much as people that want to see that maybe thinking. I just don't think there's enough time to 
wrap a trilogy while also trying to change things previously introduced in the last film. I just don't think you can make it work. And I think the title, in fact, and this is what I kind of hope I want to see, is I think The Rise of Skywalker, maybe Skywalker, it's more of like a mantle, a, uh, an ideal, than just a strict bloodline. And the fact that even though Rey isn't in fact a Skywalker or Obi-Wan's daughter or anything like that, doesn't matter. Because that, that was kind of the message of Last Jedi, which I think is really cool. And I really liked Last Jedi for starting to overturn the tropes of Star Wars and the tropes of sci-fi. And I feel like, yes, maybe we can do some things. Like, yes, her Luke Saber, the Skywalker lightsaber is fixed. I don't think many people thought that was not going to happen. Uh, Kylo Ren's mask is being fixed, whether he keeps it the whole time. I don't know. But I really don't think the parentage part, per se, is going to be uh, totally flipped around yet once again. I just don't. I, I just don't like what that represents. The thing, though, is J.J., you know, a lot of people that didn't like The Last Shadow really were happy that J.J. was coming in for episode 9. Remember, originally it was Colin Trevorrow from Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. And J.J. doesn't have a good track record of perhaps landing the ship. He's really good at setting things up and making really cool propositions and questions. But he also hasn't put himself in a position to really end things that often. So I think, you know, that's perhaps a concern if you want to come up with one. I mean, he has Chris Terrio, uh, the screenwriter who's co-wrote and wrote both good and bad movies with him. And J.J. talked about how he needed Chris to help him because J.J. had to work on the story. We also work on, you know, all the logistics of being a director of a movie this scale. So it seems like everything went smoothly. And again, the trailer looks really cool. But the ultimate question I think remains to be seen is how they try and land the ship when we're really referencing a, a true touchstone of the past once again in, in Palpatine. Whether Palpatine is just some kind of Sith perversion of a Force ghost or just a holocron or maybe he's physically trapped in the Death Star. Who the fuck knows, right? We'll, we'll find out. But of course, I'm really excited and there's more Star Wars coming soon. Every worldwide trend, the top 10, were all Star Wars trailer related I'm Friday ready. afternoon, which is pretty wild. I'm pretty hyped. I mean, I don't think anyone could have guessed Palpatine coming back. Who could have even put that on the board? Just a huge flex and just some really deep pull, which I think got people very excited. I think what you brought up are valid things, you know, JJ not you know, really finishing the series, but I have a feeling this one's going to end up pretty good. Very excited for it. Something else that looks like it's going to be a must-buy a subscription for when it comes out, Disney+. Plus. Give me a little breakdown of what we can be expecting with that since we've been talking so much about like Apple+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, pretty much every plus you can think of. <laughs> yeah, Hulu used to be Hulu+, Plus as well. Yeah, Disney+, Plus got unveiled in just its own keynote last Thursday, and we knew a lot about it. We knew a lot about the shows, but we didn't know when it was coming and the exact price point, things like that. We were told it was going to be on the cheaper end, and in fact, it is exactly that. It's six ninety nine, and you can actually get an annual subscription where it costs even less. And I think that's quite the flex considering the breadth of desirable projects that will be on the service. Because again, it's all of Disney, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Disney Original, Disney Channel, Disney Animation, everything. A lot of other Fox stuff. Like we know that Disney Plus will be the exclusive home of all 30 seasons of The Simpsons. Personally, I thought The Simpsons perhaps was a little too edgy, maybe been on Hulu. Disney now controls Hulu, but no, it's going to be on Disney Plus. And I think that's, they just kind of just put their cards on the table. I think the stock, Disney stock briefly hit an all-time high the day after. And Netflix stopped to drop a little bit. And I think Netflix is, we talked a lot about the impact of Apple and Disney on Netflix. 
Netflix on our Apple TV Plus episode. So please check out that segment on YouTube. But I think Disney Plus officially entering the fray and also coming out Guns of Blazes. Like we saw a, some shots of The Mandalorian, which will be on the series at launch, which is launching November 12th. And you have that. You have all these Marvel Studio shows that Kevin Foggy is directly involved in. WandaVision, Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, as well as his Hawkeye one. Quite impressive. Quite impressive lineup. And whereas Apple definitely kind of slow played it they have a lot of prestige shows that sound appealing but the overall breadth content seems much slighter than disney whereas disney's like we have the best library in the game here it is at a cheap price we dare you not to pay for it and it's pretty exciting yeah and here's all these new live action movies that we've just released from the new year and oh the only place you can get it is through our subscription service and we know your kids like it so here you go yeah i just definitely am excited to have more jeremy renner in my life man you know, that Hawkeye <laughs> series, I was clamoring for it. So couldn't be more excited if I wanted to be. It's just funny that Renner is going to actually be Hawkeye like in earnest. That's his own starring. But it's also with Kate Bishop, the comic character. So it's going to be a short run if just one miniseries and they'll pass it off. So, yeah, man, Renner, he wasn't really Hawkeye that much. He really counts the screen time. But uh, alas, also Lady and the Tramp, the live action that they've already filmed and done the mocap for. Uh, Lady is voiced by Tessa Thompson, and The Tramp is voiced by Justin Thoreau. Again, hmm. nothing now that anyone was clamoring for, but I'm going to sure. watch it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Tessa Thompson, man, she just keeps doing these big, big movies. Men in Black coming out. She's going to be Fuck in yeah. this miniseries. Just give her more work. She's she's fantastic. Get off Westworld, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, can't win them all, I guess. Any any last thoughts on Disney Plus? Like, we got a lot to go to, so I'm thinking maybe we keep it moving, and we'll talk about that as it gets closer. There's some other stuff we know is coming. The Rogue One cash-in spinoff. We know Alan Tudyk's back for K2SO and that as well. Nothing else really reported on. Clone War Season 7, we already knew about that. There's a high school musical series. There's a ton of shit, so that's what you expect. But it sounds like it's going to be impressive with a lot to offer right away and it's at a good price so i feel like they're gonna get a lot of subs unsurprisingly shouts to billy d man the fact he's gonna be in mandalorian looking cool as shit billy d oh sorry carl weathers carl Weathers. i had a friend do the same thing (laughs) (laughs) i knew once i said i was like that doesn't sound right carl weathers shout out carl Weathers. anyways moving on shout out to bts dropping their second project that we're going to be reviewing i think this is like their fourth or fifth project like a lot at this point yeah we talked about love yourself answer which dropped last year very big album bts huge k-pop band they dropped this ep or maybe it's an album i guess it's an ep short it's only seven songs map of the soul persona i mean first off the names of these albums are just a little much for me colon they love their colons (laughs) <laughs> they love colons i prefer things like ventura or arizona baby <laughs> which we'll be talking about soon but i was very surprised so i put this album on at the gym and i was like you know this might be a tough listen at the gym from bts here because love yourself answer i thought there was some kind of soft songs on there there was a lot to like but i wasn't it wasn't workout music this went hard at the gym dude <laughs> but the guitars the drums this was a much more rock sounding album to me or project to me for BTS than their last couple project, projects to listen to. And they really just like made this a lot heavier just by bringing these like super, I don't know if generic is the right word, but just like, I don't know, just it, it wasn't like anything that was spicy about it, but it was just like heavier, which I, I appreciated. So mm-hmm. I ended up enjoying this. I don't know if there's anything that like stood out too, too much. I mean, maybe home, but there's a lot to like on here in just a short time. What did you think about BTS, Map of the Soul, Persona? I also didn't find it like super impressive, but I still listened to it, I think, twice in a row. 
like I finished yeah. it, it's gonna just short listen, and then I just immediately like put it back on to try and like re-listen to some of the songs as I was doing something. And next thing I know, I finished it again. And I think some of the beats are a little samey, a little glitzy. But you're right. I think there is a distinct choice to change up the production a little bit because, like you said, some of their other stuff can just sound like some soft pop. And again, that's more or less what they do. But they're talented vocalists. There's a lot of them. I still don't quite recognize each guy. Like, obviously, we know RM, the front man, he's really talented. And they sing, they rap, they do a lot of stuff. And I think an EP like this is just a cool little, like, flavor palette cleanser for you if you're just trying to jump in and understand, like, what is BTS exactly. I think a song like Boy With Love, which was the hyped up song with featuring Halsey, briefly featuring Halsey. I think that song, I think it's, it's okay, it's fine. But <laughs> despite it being just okay, in my opinion, it bulldozed the youtube 24 hour view record that blackpink just said i mean they beat it by like almost 20 million views 74.6 million views in the first 24 hours 100 million views in less than two days bts now has three of the fastest watched videos in 24 hours in the top 10 the bts army is real and you can understand why they care so much um because i feel like this is a band that can occupy a lot of different spaces within their sound while still sounding like themselves like a song like uh, Dionysus, the uh, last track, has yep. a lot of switch-ups in that, but also has like a lot of like really easy like arena chants and stuff. And I think that's a lot, a lot of their fans want to hear. So BTS is, I mean, they just did SNL, man. That's a huge moment for K-pop in general. I think, again, this is not their, I don't think this is like amazing. Then again, I don't know if they've made anything amazing yet, but they're still really, I think, solid and really huge already. So I'm really curious to see what they continue to do because I think they're just getting better and more interesting as they continue to release music. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's going to be criticism of them going to a bit of a heavier sound and, and making these uh, production choices. But even though these songs probably aren't their best, I applaud them for trying something, especially when you're this big. You don't have to necessarily change lanes, but they keep trying, which I think is great. And they still flow together really well. Like These are still competently made pop songs. It's just maybe they aren't going to be the songs that they remembered for 10, 15 years down the road. So, And I thought you made a really good point. If you haven't jumped into them, this is a good place to start because you get a real sense of who they are. I think this is a little more accessible than maybe some of their earlier stuff, which maybe need to be more K-pop uh, inclined to really right. enjoy. Point. Why don't we jump, though, to intellectuals? So, you know anything about Chance the Rapper? You probably know Donnie Trumpet and the Social Experiment. Well, these are two of the guys from, or it might even just be the whole Social Experiment, but I'm pretty sure it's just two of the guys from it, correct? There's more guys in it, yeah. So, it's Nico Seagal and Nate Fox, and they. I guess this would be EDM. But it's really like a genre-bending type album that infuses a bunch of different sounds. You know, you got jazz in here. You got some classical at times. Definitely um, some EDM and, and hip-hop. So it's pretty interesting. Listen, and the self-titled album, their first one, I thought was probably one of the most surprising albums of the year. Up there with uh, Lil Sims for me. You know, just that unexpected but really blown away with how good it was. Before we, we kind of get into why, I, I wanted just kind of get your sense of the album and if you enjoyed it or not. I, I did enjoy it. I think Nico, who you met, used to go by Dying Trump, but he's since accent moniker. You can probably guess why. Nico and Nate, as part of the social experiment, when they really surfed back in 2015, I think that's a that was a project that was kind of was the first project that Chance was heavily on after the big blow up with uh, Acid Rap. And I thought Surf had probably too many features really up and down, but you can still kind of get that lineage of the social experiment, understand what this 
jazz inclined band is about and let me tour with chance work with chance you're familiar with them but it was kind of an up and down thing i think intellectual nico and nate they didn't they didn't focus in fact they they branched out as you mentioned with genre but i think this is just kind of just more impressive musically because i think they it's more about like their talents specifically as opposed to uh-huh. just everyone's friends hanging out together and making music. So I liked it a lot. I actually like to listen to it again because I think there's a lot of moments on here that I want to revisit. But I, I like what, what really jumped out to you because this is our first time hearing these guys make this kind of music on their own. Yeah. So what jumped out to me most was just how, I mean, first of all, this is totally right up my alley. I enjoy chill music just in general is by far my favorite music to listen to. And this this album straight through is chill. Like, I don't think there's many moments that are gonna, you're going to find yourself like head bobbing to or like, getting really like jazzed up about but there's it's just really one well produced and well mixed but also it's so interesting how they go about these songs and they had like you mentioned this moment on money like the way that they incorporate the strings and then slowly start working in snaps and like pattern drum beats by the end it really it almost feels like you're like underwater like swimming underwater or something like that like it really make you feel like you're on adventures in these songs and you're just seeing different things pass you by throughout. And it's really well done. And it actually kind of reminded me of the the DJ duo Air, who I believe it was back in either the early 2000s or it might have been late 90s, dropped the album Moon Safari, which is one of my favorite EDM albums to go back to, just because it kind of creates the same feel where you're kind of going on this adventure and seeing these things pass by, and, but you're on this like same plane. It's almost like going on a on a safari so to speak but you just have these really weird and interesting things going by and you're like ah oh, that was really well done or oh, i just noticed that that was great so if you haven't listened to moon safari by air i'd recommend that and then listen to this i think you'll hear a lot of similarities in that i guess the songs that stood out to me were probably money call you and boca um but i, I want to hear from you first like what stood out to you what did you find most appealing about this album yeah, I like Boca too. It's funny. The next song on the, in the track list, Rockstar, has a feature from Knox Fortune, another Chicago yeah. artist. At Knox, we know him from All Night on Coloring Book, of course, that chorus. And you know, that really nasally singing that he does. And the way that that song kind of just immediately flows in, and they have Knox, and there's not a lot of guests on this, but Knox comes in and just kind of rides like the instrumentation that they're already laying down. That was really cool. And then you have Shoddy, the song after that featuring one of the few raps on the project, Vic Mensa. Vic and Nico, of course, both became well-known as part of the Kids These Days band from Chicago. That was, of course, before Social Experiment was formed. The Save Money Click with Chance. Deep, underground Chicago shit, basically, in like 2012, 2011, around that time. And I think they made some really cool rap rock songs at that time. But to have Vic and Nico, obviously they worked together since, but to have them come back and i think vic just effortlessly drops down a solid verse again on this really smooth music that nico and nate are making i think it's just a really cool vibe this whole project it's it was pretty under the radar as of release i kind of just want to hear them make more stuff just keep putting shit out like we know nate's been working with chance yep on chance four but nico i don't, I don't it hasn't been as much anyway apparently nico and nate have a studio in like burbank or whatever i mean I want these guys to keep working on their own stuff because clearly they have some really cool ideas. I think the whole thing's a vibe. And again, I want to listen to it again because there's some things that I feel like I just kind of glanced over. I didn't take the time to really make note of. But I think uh, the features when they popped up stood out to me for, I guess, not being distracting, just kind of fitting in. But overall, I think that kind of speaks to just the kind of, they're both engineers at the end of the day and they really you know know how to make stuff that sounds good. And that's what this is. Definitely agree. You know, one of one of their songs is already on our playlist. So check that out on Spotify. Nostalgia Best of 2019. I'm looking I'm hoping that they'll do some collaborations. I know that they've worked with Chance, but obviously 
Frank Ocean and Kanye, they've also had a couple songs with. So I'm hoping to see them jump on more people and hopefully start to move things, add their flair to different songs. Someone that has a definite, definite flair to his most recent EP, Kevin Abstract, Arizona baby, leader of Brockhampton, which I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to say that there's a leader because there's so many of them and they all do different things, but he's probably the standout. Like, Front man, face. New face. <laughs> Kevin Abstract, up to this point, what's his solo work look like? Yeah, he has, I forget the name, it was a mixtape he dropped, M something, I forget. He dropped that in like 2014, and at that time, he was already connected with a lot of the people that would, he would form Brockhampton with. I know Ramil, the main engineer, the producer they have, worked on that first tape with him. But Kevin didn't really blow up at all and really become successful as a tourer until American Boyfriend, his solo album. And, you know, I mean, at that time, he became well-known for being, you know, openly gay artist in hip-hop, which is obviously not common. And also, you know, making this, like, soulful singing rap and, again, just being an introspective guy. And then, you know, by around that time, like, you know, this is like 2016, the rest of the Brockhampton crew started to become well-known. And, of course, they dropped the Saturation Trilogy in 2017, following up a brief Brockhampton project they had dropped before that didn't get much traction. Off we go. We know the rest. But, yeah, Kevin was obviously the first of the group to get any t- attention as a solo artist. You know, after Amir being exiled from the group last year, Iridescence coming out and being, I think, a good project, but not as warmly received as the Saturation Trilogy, there's a lot of questions about what this crew's going to do. I mean, they seemed like they were definitely in their feelings on Iridescence partially to the detriment, I think, of the enjoyment of the music, in my opinion. They're so good. But now, this is really our first taste of anything solo from any of them since last September. So, having Kevin be the first one, given his experience as a solo act, just kind of makes sense. But again, this was pretty out of the blue, just this three-track EP coming basically out of nowhere. But it was really good. I thought it was fantastic. You know, two of the three songs I thought were really, really solid. Joyride was probably the one that I thought could have been a little bit better. But Big Wheels in Georgia were just phenomenal to me. With Big Wheels, obviously, he's talking about being a gay artist and kind of how that's influenced his uh, or affected his relationship, society, environment, acceptance, all that. I thought he flowed really well over it and led into that breakdown at the end of the song so beautifully. I was like really blown away at how just the song was composed and structured. And then Georgia, I mean, just that song is a masterpiece in my mind no doubt that that one has to go on the playlist and probably is up there for one of my favorite songs of the year at this point i tweeted that i I thought this ep is the the perfect sampler of kevin and why kevin abstract is a really both inspiring but also impressive and exciting face in hip-hop and alternative hip-hop because i think you get a lot of what he does on this right here big wheels that's one verse that's less than two minutes that song it's clearly just a piece really he could have made that whole song if he wanted but i think it's still fucking rules the way it is again some hard-ass lgbt bars you don't get that that often <laughs> like oh. it was awesome but deeper meaning but also the shit just bangs right yeah and then you mentioned georgia joyride i think is just kind of like a it's similar to georgia but it's quite not as quite as good i've definitely been skipping that when i've been mm-hmm. repeating it's probably listen to other songs quite a lot but georgia very similar to a lot of other songs he made in the saturation trilogy you know rapping mix up with singing, singing choruses, distorted vocals. Kevin has done a lot of these kind of choruses before, and maybe this doesn't reinvent the wheel for what Kevin does, but I think if you're a fan of Brock Captain or Kevin, if you like lyrics with some punch, alternative hip-hop, I think this is great. Obviously, he's dead to Andre 2000. Yeah. Not a bad thing, in my opinion. I don't mind hearing the influences, you know? No, definitely not, especially because it's not like he's being a copycat. He's obviously just, I think, very inspired by the way Three, three Sex has 
gone about his work and the way that he crafts his work. So, you know, we, we were talking or texting yesterday about it, and you mentioned that there might be some more EPs on the way. Yeah, he posted Instagram of three dates, the 11th, the 18th, and the 25th, three Thursdays. The first Thursday was this past Thursday, and Arizona Baby Drop. So everyone's kind of theorizing that he'll drop some more EPs. Who knows? be really cool. Because again, these are just three songs. I'd like to hear six more. So we'll keep you tuned in, and if he drops some more, we'll obviously review them because I think his music, Brockhan's music, is just must listen just because it's so exciting and unpredictable. Absolutely. Someone that is not as unpredictable, but certainly just as quality as Kevin Abstract is our guy, Anderson Pop. Dropped Ventura this past weekend, follow-up to Oxnard, which came out at the end of 2018, was on, I believe, both of our top albums. Just a really solid I album. One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, the, I think the thing that about Oxnard that stood out so much is I mean Anderson Pac is known for having the basically like really flowing into this funk old school type you know g-funk like not even psychedelic really but just kind of like jazz infused rock vibe and he flows through that so well but Oxnard was a little bit more rappy it was a little bit more he's bringing bars he's bringing guests on they're going back and forth he's still playful on it still the same Pac but just kind of that sound became a little bit more rap influenced Ventura almost seems like too much of a correction from that you know if that was the critique of the album Ventura to me feels like he just wanted to get right back to Malibu and, um, but with I think less to say which makes it just a little bit a little bit disappointing I'm kind of like hating on this right now. I thought this album was still really good, and I enjoyed most of the songs on here. But for an Anderson Pac work, I felt like it just fell a little short. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned Oxnard, a little more hip-hop indebted. Uh, hip-hop features, Kendrick, Snoop. You heard the album already, you know. Polarizing with his hardcore fans, and obviously he's been well-known on the internet for some time. Dr. Dre really put him on the map, and then the Grammys have recognized him recently, and everyone knows about Cheeky Andy now, and for good reason. He's awesome. But I really liked Oxnard because I thought it was a little different than what he's been doing and still good. That song like Savior's Road, a straight banger. That's just a deep cut on Oxnard. Most people don't even talk about that song. But here on Ventura, you're right. He just goes back to Malibu. And I think most of these songs are really soulful, really smooth. I like a lot of these yeah. tracks. The problem is I would just listen to Malibu over this. That's my, because there's not deep engaging lyrics that I want to like get back to. And again, Oxnard maybe was a little lyrically up and down you know, it's definitely vulgar on that one but fear ventura like because it seems it almost comes across as a quick course correction maybe it was a little undercooked in the writing department i think that's my conclusion but because it's so similar to malibu without being reaching the highs of malibu i'll just go back to malibu because that's an album i love right you know what i mean and that's not anderson's fault per se it doesn't make ventura bad but that's just the world it exists in and I, I think that's just more of a testament to Pac's past work malibu is a classic an album that if you are into current hip-hop in any way you really need to listen to because there's just so much on there to dig through and enjoy and i think actually a word that you use that is something i really love about anderson but also i think hurt him on this project is smooth because I almost feel like this was too smooth. And where Malibu really shone was when he was able to imp- take these smooth songs, but really make them pop with things that you wouldn't expect or things that just made the songs feel more lively. And I think this album is this album is more like you're going to put the, the top down in your convertible and like ride down Ventura Boulevard and just kind of like vibe out <laughs> to this rather than put this on at a club and dance to it. And I think both of the... Both types of albums are great in their own way, but I just prefer something like Malibu because it's just more fun. Um, there were a lot of uh, guests on this. You know, you had 
Andre 3000, Smokey Robinson, Brandy, which I was like, damn, Brandy on the track. Uh, Nate Dog, uh, obviously on the closing one. Which which uh, guest verses stood out to you? I thought the Andre verse was solid, like a lot of his recent guest features, really competently made, but ultimately I don't think stands out all that much. I really like Smokey Robinson. I believe Make It Better was the second single after King James. I think that track is one of my favorites. Song right after that, Reaching Too Much with uh, Lala Hathaway, I thought was awesome. And I really like the Brandy feature yeah. as well on Jet Black. He's really good at having features that complement his songs. And this has been the case through all of his records. And they always fit the vibe, fit what he's going for on that track. And again, these are inspired choices. Brandy, no one's really using Brandy right now. So you have to really want that. Uh, Andre, of course, you have to have the clout to even get him to do it for you. Smokey Robin, like these are great. And Nate Dogg, RIP, you know, it's like these these are great inspired choices and also the flashiest ones. You could get more high profile features. You could have got SZA on here if you wanted to, but you didn't. So I think well chosen. I, I don't find it, any of the songs offensive. It's just, I, I, as you, I think, put well, really well, it's just sometimes it just kind of smoothly blends, and sometimes that can be detriment. Yeah, it's actually funny. The, the first time I listened to this, I had my Spotify just on shuffle, which I didn't recognize. And I was just kind of listening through, and I was like, oh, this album kind of flows really well. And I looked down, saw it on shuffle, and I was like, huh. That's actually, I think, a testament to the work that these songs can still flow together and feel so cohesive, even if they're jumbled around. My favorite song was definitely What Can We Do? featuring Nate Dogg. I just really thought the beginning of that captured me. You know, it kind of has that like, Tomorrow Never Knows type sound at the beginning of it that and then goes into this very just like smooth, I don't know, just a very vibey song. There's no other way I can really put it. I just was like finishing up my run on the treadmill. It was just like, man, this song is fucking great. <laughs> and this is what Anderson does well. I mean, I'm probably going to listen to What Can We Do like 10 times in the next like three days just because these songs get stuck in my head. And he's such a great artist that he can have a down album like this, and it still could be one of the best like 15, 20 albums of the year. Exactly. I, I had one question for you. So he's dropped four solo albums, Venice, Malibu, Oxnard, and now Ventura. If you didn't know, those are all locales, towns, cities in the greater L.A. County. What area of L.A. should he name his next album after? I'm trying to think. Like Everything's more or less one syllable, so he can probably throw out Hollywood, Inglewood, Long Beach. Manhattan. What about a Laguna? Hmm. That's not quite LA. But I'm just trying to think. Irvine? There's a lot of options. I'm just curious what he picks. Burbank? I don't know. Do you have to go to Burbank, make some movies? I would like to see him do Manhattan Beach. Uh, I think these are all after beaches, right? They're all on the coast, yeah. I'd like to see him do Manhattan and make it like a real New York album. Maybe bring in some of these Beast Coast people That'd be cool. as some features. I think, I think he could do a really good job with that. And it'd be kind of a, a double play on meaning, but Whatever he does is going to do well. Uh, how would you rank the albums just by kind of putting you on the spot? I have Malibu clear and away number one. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I still download my music. I know, I'm a fossil. But I only download the songs I actually like, so I don't download full albums. But I have eight or nine Malibu tracks downloaded, which speaks a lot, because usually I don't keep that many songs on the project. Second, I have Oxnard, then Venice, then Ventura. Yeah, I, I think I would probably have it malibu oxnard venice then ventura all really really solid albums so definitely check that out and again go to our spotify playlist where we have two songs from him on there nostalgia best of 2019 and let's jump into some movies so donald glover headline coachella friday night he had some very interesting dialogue with the crowd about <laughs> people who recently passed away including nipsey hustle mac miller his father and how 
there's a good chance that uh, at least one person in the 100,000 people there probably is not going to live till next. Was not received super well by the crowd in attendance. Can't really imagine why. But one of the uh, one of the cool things that came along with this is so obviously Coachella is streamed on YouTube after after his performance. A new movie called Guava Island, directed by Hiro Murai, starring Don Glover and uh, Rihanna, was dropped on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime. It was free, so. If you had Amazon, you can go watch it. We watched it. It's about, what, 50 minutes, 55 minutes. Pretty quick watch. Yep. Dave, what do you think about this? Good, bad, in between? I'll say in between. I think it's a, uh, it's a, it, it, the movie, uh, it's a movie that is a little short and thus a little undercooked, but presents interesting premises. And I think still, for what it is, still works pretty well. And the most engaging part of it is Glover's use of his own tracks into the story. This is America, I think, is probably the best use where he performs that song in like a warehouse with the warehouse sounds replicating the, the beat that we're used to. But that was really cool. But he also deals uh summertime magic, feels like summer Saturday, that uh, mm-hmm. cut he performed on I think it was it SNL last year. Pretty cool. You know, I ultimately I thought Rihanna and Letitia Wright for that matter are underused. This is a movie that kinda has to move quick quite quickly because it's so short. What did you think? I almost didn't even believe it was Letitia Wright. So I was like, man, she was she was just in Black Panther. And now she's doing this like bit role in this Donald Glover movie. Like, I don't know. And, and Rihanna, too. Like, you were just in Ocean's 8. And like, probably one of the coolest parts, if not most well acted in the movie. But still, like, come on. You're just going to play this like small role in this. Like, you guys should be doing so much more. Although, Rihanna is just like the most interesting person to look at in the world like every time she does anything i just can't stop like facial expression yeah it's unbelievable like she just anytime she's on the screen i just feel like i can't take your eyes off her it's amazing i i thought some of the ideas presented were pretty interesting overall i felt like it almost made like a better extended music video which i think is kind of similar to what you're saying those were the the times when i felt most engaged I didn't really, I didn't find myself super impressed with the, the parts where Donald Glover's character, I'm forgetting his character's name, and, you know, like, the big boss who runs the island, like, we're having their interaction. Right. Yes, I was like, okay, like, don't really care. I, I get that it's moving the story along, kind of saying, like, capitalism sucks your soul, and what good is life without having time to appreciate and celebrate the wonderful aspects of life, like art, but, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't a super big fan of it, but... I thought for a 55-minute movie that was just dropped out of nowhere, pretty good. Couldn't Didn't have high expectations for it. See, I, I kind of come at it, too, with the angle of I first heard of this, you know, over the weekend, like about everyone else, and I was like, oh, what is it, another visual album, like Lemonade or Endless? Is it a, a short film? A lot of musicians make short films. I'm like, ah, I, I don't care. No, they're like, oh, no, it's a real movie. Hero Marisha. I'm like, all right, well, Hero yeah. Shot, I guess I need to see it. Shot it in Cuba. Oh, that's cool on amazon right now for free and i was like all right it sounds legit i guess i have to have to see what's see the fuss about and yeah i think um the capitalism art message again like i think it it works as a framework well enough for what the movie is but if this was i think a little fleshed out written a little better and thus a little longer you probably could have tried to actually make that point a little stronger but for what it is it's entertaining it's okay yeah and here mariah really well shot i kind of had that like grainy almost like was it like 60 millimeter type yep. feel to it so i thought that added a lot and uh, a lot of just the scenes on it were just beautiful so uh gotta give hero mariah a shout out on it something that was also beautifully shot was terry gillum's the man who killed don quixote 
Now, I know that you saw this in theaters last week. I watched it on a computer this weekend. <laughs> Very interesting film with a lot of history leading up to it. Maybe you can give people a quick uh, breakdown of some of the weirdness and, and history leading up to the making of this. Yeah, so I don't want to go too deep on that. There's a great vulture piece called uh, The Man Who Almost Was Killed by Don Quixote. It's this long Terry Gilliam profile from like two weeks ago, and it basically explains the whole story in a really great way. But Terry Gilliam, as we know, is a acclaimed UK director, famous for being part of Monty Python, co-directing Monty Python the Holy Grail, also known for... 12 Monkeys, The Fisher King, etc. He's pretty old now. Um, and he's, he's known for his movies. I think quality-wise, they're kind of up and down overall, but he has his own unique style, his own unique uh, worldview, we'll say. And he's wanted to make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, this story about, obviously, the famous tale from Cervantes. And he originally got the first bit of financing for this movie back in 1989. And he like went through all these hoops to make this movie they actually went to shot, uh, shoot it in 2001 in Spain with this guy, Jean Rochefort, this famous uh, French actor, as well as Johnny Depp, a young yep. Johnny Depp. And the shoot uh, was famously horrible and it failed and they had to stop making the movie. They actually made a documentary called uh, Lost in La Mancha about the failed shoot. It's like legendary, almost like Apocalypse Now level mm. like hell, except they didn't actually yeah. finish the movie. So it's quite the story. And then he, he didn't really stop throughout the past you know decade and a half since and uh, he finally uh, got it together, just you know, getting financing here and there. It's really fascinating. And Amazon actually came in at the last minute and was going to help distrib- uh, distribute it. Then uh, they ended up bailing on him last year because one of these producers was like suing for more credit and finance and like they're going to keep it from Khan. And really sad story because like, Terry finally got this movie financed and he got it made. And now some guy's going to stop him from showing it at the, the film festival. <laughs> And then Amazon backs out on him. So I had to see it in a Fathom event, a one night only. And like, to their credit, Fathom events have this basically everywhere from what I could tell. And now it's just going to be in a few more screenings, I think, here and there throughout the major cities. And then it'll, I'm soon, soon they'll sell it to some sort of, eventually there's no news on that. I don't think it'll be on Amazon now, given how they no. treated him. But uh, quite the story. I encourage everyone to check it out because I think the story really frames how you watch this movie because it, you can't help but think about the the meta narrative yep. to it you know but i mean what did you think of the movie itself it's, it's a long movie and it's quite indulgent like a lot of gilliam's work but i mean what did you think of it overall? i thought it was pretty good it was definitely long bored me at some parts i felt like it got a bit repetitive in terms of the script and some of the things happening like there's only so many times i can see jonathan price being crazy old don quixote and like toby played by adam driver having to be like no, don't you understand? This isn't what's going on. Like, it was just like, okay, like, you've broken my will. Like, I get that this guy is Don Quixote. Like, I can see where this is going. Like, let's just get there. Also, like, it, I'm sure that there's a lot of, like, metaphor and symbolism and probably, like, parallels to other stories that I just either don't catch or maybe I would just need to do more reading on. But I didn't find it to be super engaging. I found it to be, I found that third act to just be absolutely absurd and that was by far my favorite part but then you know whenever they get to that russian mm-hmm. oligarch's house that's or i guess a compound or whatever it is that's when things really seem to take off for me castle yeah just some ridiculous place and i think i described it to you as a, as a fever dream it's just like you don't know like what's real like what's actually going on it's pretty intense but overall like for a movie that 
had all these problems and he's been trying to make for so long. I thought it came out pretty well. Did you enjoy this movie, though? I did. The thing is, I actually never watched a trailer for this. I didn't actually know the story, really. I just knew the, the story of the movie that he made. So I kind of went in not really knowing what to expect beyond knowing the general story of the actual Don Quixote book and whatnot. And when it starts, it's, I mean, Toby is this wealthy, successful uh, commercial director, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. And he's in Spain on the shoot. Doesn't seem to be going well. But the thing is, like, Fathom events often do, like, featurettes and stuff at the start of their screenings. So I thought, like, because I got there, like, a second late, so I, and they usually don't have previews. So I was like, is this, is this the movie? Like, is Adam Driver actually, is that, is that his character? Because, like, it gets really meta, and then, like, Adam Driver, Toby, he sees his original student film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and I'm like, wait, is this, am I watching the feature? Or am I watching some behind-the-scenes, like, skits yeah. made? I was, like, initially really confused about what I was watching. But overall, I found it really amusing. I think you're right. There's a lot of repetitive scenes. I think ultimately the message, like, it's a really whimsical movie, mm. and I think the message is kind of fumbled a little bit. It's a little messy. Yeah. They made this movie a little tighter. I think you could have maybe focused in on that, but I don't know how much that was really in mind, honestly. Like, they, they did shoot this in Spain. I think it looks really cool. And that third act setting that you mentioned, like that, like, castle from the, the douchey Russian dude looked really cool as well. I saw some critiques about the treatment of women in the film. Yeah. They, um, they usually need to be saved or sex crazed. You know, it's a little, little backward view of some sort. Sounds like an old, old white dude made the movie. Makes sense. But I thought Driver was really good, both in the beginning when he's just kind of being this douchey Hollywood type and then putting up with Don Quixote. And then kind of changing and seeing the light, mm-hmm. quote unquote, at the end. I, I like Driver's performance. I think that's, I think the success of the movie is largely based on what Driver can do just to elevate material. Yeah. I think he elevated lots of things he do. And I mean, if Johnny Depp was in this now, knowing um, what we know about how Johnny Depp is these days, I don't think it would have worked as well. I couldn't even really see Johnny Depp doing as good of a job back then. It just seems like Driver has that perfect, he's able to walk that line between being douchey and goofy in such a genuine way that I I can't really think of another actor who could have played that part any better. And I think his, I think he was by far the best part of the movie for me. Also just really well shot and like the, it was obviously shot over in Europe. Uh, I didn't check if it was actually in Spain or not but just really beautiful the whole, some of it was. Yeah, the whole countryside and everything about it I thought was really well done and seeing like the little little towns there that they go into I thought was also really cool and really well done so also Adam Driver can look young like he, he looked like a kid in the flashback scene which I was kind of surprised at you know I saw this brought up and I think it's a good point you know the movie is quite meta you know I mean he's, Toby's reflecting on his first student film that he made for no money back in the day right and it's this movie ultimately is how it got made you know quite meta but also I think there's almost a missed opportunity because there was more commentary about how Toby's little movie changed this poor town in the Spanish countryside. I think you could have maybe had a more profound message about how art affects things mm. and whatnot, but they didn't quite go down that road. They just kind of acknowledged it and moved on. But yeah, I mean, I would recommend this just because it's unlike most things you would watch. It's a Gilliam film at the end of the day, and because it's a Gilliam film, it's up and down. But I liked it a lot. What did you think of High Life? Because I know you checked that out. I didn't get a chance to see it. So, <laughs> High Life, my dude. High Life is an A24 movie that premiered at Toronto International Film Festival last September and was immediately bought by A24 and then distributed in limited release two weeks ago. I think this past week where I caught it, it's only in, in 32 theaters. So it's ramping up slowly. 
and it's directed by Claire Denis, who's this renowned French director. This is her first English language film. And I actually saw her most recent movie, Let the Sunshine In, that came out last year. It's actually on Hulu right now. And that was like a rom-com of sorts about older uh, romance for older people. And it's quite a good movie. It was really well received. I actually didn't quite appreciate as much as I thought because I think perhaps because it was in subtitles, it was in French, obviously, I uh, perhaps didn't quite pick up on as much of the humor. So I feel like I was just kind of missing stuff as it was going along, but I still thought the movie was really well done. The highlight is in space. And if you know anything about me, you know that's my thing. And also, it stars Robert Pattinson, who's basically the... It's a bit of a two-hander with Juliette Binoche, who also was in Let the Sunshine In, but Robert Pattinson's really the, the, the main driving force in this movie. And I think going in, if you're watching this, if you're aware of this movie existence, again, small release, low profile, all that, you probably know by now that Robert Pattinson is quietly like one of the most exciting actors we have right now, just because this is a dude... Who got super famous and wealthy off of Twilight, big blockbuster franchise, right? First got well known for Harry Potter briefly, yes. right? And then he, what what does he do after Twilight? He just decides to make really cool choices. Choices basically in the face of his his good looking traits and his stardom, you know, moves like the Rover and Good Time, Lost City of yep. Z, transformative roles that leading men that are good looking and famous don't usually take when they're really hot and young, you know? And Pattinson, I think, just kind of comes off as like a true thespian because he's just doing these cool roles. And he'll be in The King with him and T. Chalamet later this year, so I'm excited for that. But High Life, uh, I don't want to really spoil anything about it because, again, no one's really seen it yet. But the, the premise is that we're some nebulous future on Earth, the government is now sending prisoners, death row prisoners, convicts, into space as, like, guinea pigs to test things. Our paths is... Uh, one of these like vessels going into deep space and they're going to a black hole to try and harvest the energy and we now know what it looks like exactly and a24 use that for marketing yeah. really smart <laughs> and julia Binoche, who is also a criminal of sorts uh, like everyone on the ship is like this kind of devious doctor character that kind of keeps the whole crew alive in, in sense but also has her own motivations and i don't really want to say much more uh, under 3000 is in this as well as Mia Goth. It's really well acted. A lot of other actor, uh, European actors I'm not familiar with, but they were all good. And it's a really cerebral, thoughtful movie on space, very existential. And because Pattinson's so good and he has to do a lot of scenes by himself, it's just really thoughtful. And I, there's a bunch of standout moments in it. I don't want to really spoil them. A lot of them are, are kind of spoilery. But it's funny. I saw a review comparing this to First Reformed, and I have to agree, I think. The ideas that First Reform brings to the table in terms of what Ethan Hawke's going through and, you know, what he's thinking about and how he's changing. There's a lot of that in oh, Highlight. I mean, Claire Denis, she doesn't uh, even want you to call it sci-fi. But, I mean, it was really sci-fi, but it's thoughtful. And I think it's really cool. And I really hope more people see this because it's my number one movie wow. of the year right now, Above Us. Again, I like sci-fi a lot, so I'm inclined a little bit to like this but quite impressed so i really recommend everyone give highlight a chance and let me know if you do see it because maybe we'll follow up when i get a chance to see it because i definitely want to check it out keep it moving though something that came out on fx this past week was fossey verdon which is star sam rockwell and michelle williams we've been anticipating this this drop you know bob fossey very famous broadway uh musical director um, he's all, I believe he also did some movies, which, uh, you know, the the show, the premiere at least, talks about mm-hmm. how those were good and bad. 
um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But what did you think of this premiere? Because I, I think there were some really good parts and some parts I wasn't so keen on. I'd like to hear what you thought. Right, so the thing is, we've only seen the premiere, like everyone else, but all the critics have actually seen five of the eight episodes. So reading their impressions about most of the season was interesting. We'll get to that. But the thing about Bob Fosse I thought was very interesting, because again, his his whole run is largely before our time, but obviously very influential in Gwen Verdon, who's played by Michelle Williams, is also quite influential, although quite not as famous. Fosse is the only person to ever win an Emmy, Tony, and Oscar in the same year. Pretty good. Back in 1973. Like, forget an EGOT. Pretty he did good. all that shit mad fast. Pretty good. I think he won nine Tonys overall. So, really talented and influential director, choreographer, and the, the, the show is largely about that. I think the problem with people's reception to the show is that Bob Fosse as a guy is uh, less than uh, less than good. We can get to that in a second. But after, for a premiere, I think for a, uh, for, for a pilot of sorts, what I liked about it was that it just kind of drops you right into this world. I think we're we're taking picking up in was it the early sixties I think uh, he's working on his first or second second film and like they're dropping a lot of his works and Verdon's works and you just kind of have to follow along they're not really going to hold your hand about it and I, I did a lot of Wikipedia afterwards just to try and piece things together but I like that they just kind of throw you into it it looks really cool it's obviously really of the time and Rockwell and Williams I, yep. I, I would expect they're really good they're kind of transforming into these roles and this first this first episode is largely about Bob, and it quickly shows you that he's uh-huh. got some issues as a guy, despite being a, a talented, you know, a, yep. a problematic genius, something we've heard of before, a difficult man. And we've seen lots of difficult men on TV. Usually they're fictional, though. This is a real person. So I like I, I really like the premiere. I'm curious to keep watching the show and just learn more about the story and see the performances. You don't get as much of Verdon as the title card, the name of the show, would suggest. It, the show is based off of a a biography called Fosse. And I know Matt Zolorzeitz proposed that maybe by calling it Fosse Verdon, they're giving Verdon more credit as the mm-hmm. woman behind the, the man. It's often overlooked. Maybe like we're retroactively doing that. But they didn't really show as much of that as you'd you'd want, at least in the first episode. But what did you think? We, I think you hit the nail on the head. Rockwell and, and Williams are fantastic. I thought costume design, the, the dance choreography, you know, bringing in the show tune numbers, all of it was so big spender. Yeah, it was just, but it really just like brings you in. It's very entertaining. But my critique is basically what you mentioned at the end that I didn't get enough Michelle Williams in this. And I understand that this is probably going to be mostly about Fosse's journey, it seems like, which I don't know if I'm as interested in seeing just his journey as I am in seeing the interplay because it. I think the scene that was most interesting to me was when he gets the phone call that his movie flopped and, you know, Verdon comes in and she's like comforting him and he's like, oh no, look, you're right on the front page here. Like you're not even in the movie and they're talking about you or whatever. And it was, it was like mildly verbally and, and emotionally abusive in a way. And I was kind of like, now this is where like, I, I think I want to like sink my teeth into because it seems like there's some really interesting dynamics at play here, not only within Bob Fosse, but within their relationship. But you almost get none of Verdon's background in here. And that's something I worry is if it's going to be a 50-50 type thing, it's going to be 60-40. I just want more Michelle Williams, especially because I think people know she's good, but I think she's still one of the most underrated actresses out there right now. Overall, I, I'm, I can't wait to see more of this show, and I think it's going to end up, I'm going to end up liking it a lot. But just that was my one main critique. of it. It's got a really impressive creative team behind it too. Lin-Manuel Miranda, EP. Steven Levinson from Dear Evan Hansen is largely showrunning it. Joel Fields from The Americans is involved. Impressive group. And, you know, Lynn and Levinson, you'd, you'd hope they 
obviously they, they, they know all about these people. You'd think they'd have more to more to say about Verdon. And from what the critics have said, have seen more. There is this largely bile episodes all about Verdon. So I'm looking forward to seeing more. And you know, I think it's hard to. I don't want to be too critical of that. The choice that we've talked about with who, who you're focusing on, because ultimately, as we've said, it's really impressive both to look at, to watch. The, it's well written, and even the scene Bob has with the producer in the restaurant is obvious. Tell of what's to come. That was great. It seems like a lot of the criticism is kind of like a criticism because of the time we're in right now. Like we've gotten a lot of difficult men shows. And I guess maybe people are a little put off by seeing one about a real guy, real difficult man. I don't think anyone's trying to like cancel Bob Fosse or anything dead already. Like what's it doesn't really matter. We we know he was a philanderer. But I also don't wanna use that against the show too much, you know. I mean you can critique the show without critiquing Fosse right. as a guy. And if they in fact choose to make it all about Bob just by presenting it as one of as a partnership show, then you can critique it. But what what what's let that happen first before sure. we say that. Yeah, and just one last thing. I think you mentioned it, but I really like how they uh, like have the countdown clock, so to speak. Eighteen years before, yeah, like cool. three, like it was like three minutes before, something like that. Just, uh, I'm really interested to see what, what that's leading up to. I'm sure if I read more reviews, I could probably find it. But oh, I know, I found out what it's leading I, I've up been, to. But don't don't read. Yeah, it I, I've been to. trying to like stay away from it because I want to kind of have some surprise, so to speak. But why don't we jump into and finish off? Start with Star Wars, ending with. Game of Thrones, uh, season eight premiere last night. A lot of mirroring from the very first episode of season one in this. Big reunion, big setup episode, which is pretty much what we all expected. We got little kids being pinned to walls. <laughs> we got people riding dragons and uh, the person who owns the dragons not even being like that surprised that this person can do it. Just some uh, a lot, lot going on this episode. So Dave, where do you want to start? What what stood out most to you in the premiere? I just want to start with how impressed I was with it as a yeah. premiere. As you mentioned, there's a lot of setup. Generally, beginnings of seasons in Thrones had to set a lot of table, set a lot of characters, usually all over the place. You gotta reestablish the plots and get them moving. But as we mentioned in our theories segment, let's check that out, youtube.com slash pod, because all the characters are in the same place, you get to have the best of both worlds. You get to set up the plot while I also have lots of that palace intrigue that the show is so famous and so good at. And I just really like seeing all these reunions that we knew were coming. Arya and Gendry, Arya and the Hound, Jamie and Bran at the end, we don't get it yet. Sansa and Daenerys for the first time. John and Arya, that's probably the, the one everyone wanted to see the most. Mm-hmm. Just really cool bits of payoff. And meanwhile, John rides a dragon in the first episode. Sam tells John, he's actually Aegon Targaryen in the first episode. We find out the Night King has already passed last hearth and has killed uh, Ned Umber, young Lord Umber, and all of them. We get all that in the first episode, and it's under an hour. But I thought it was, was well paced and feel yep. rushed. Tyrion Sansa reunion, I thought it was really great. It really establishes how much uh, Sansa has grown and also how Tyrion has kind of stumbled the past few years. And I think the most important thing they had to set up was the distrust the Northmen have for Danny as a foreigner outsider coming up to into their world and also truly Sansa's distrust or aversion to putting all their eggs in the Danny basket and then even things that we thought they kind of got away from in season seven they talk about a lot of logistics right Cersei's like I, I was I was promised elephants and everyone's like oh cool that'll be cool to see the elephants and then nah, no uh, elephants, golden dog. company leader I forget his name he's like nah brah they, they, they don't like the, <laughs> the ship the, the the sea voyage 
Meanwhile, HBO is like, you know, too expensive. We got dragons to... Yeah, we got dragons but... to make, but we, we we forgot about the direwolves. Sorry, man. Don't don't have enough in the budget for fucking direwolves. And Sa- and Sansa, though, is like, yo, how are we feeding yeah, dragons? for real. Bro, I didn't plan for this shit. Like, these are, like, really... How, how do like, we feed in, all the people question? in Winterfell? I mean, goddamn. Yeah, Excellent. I was like, really good point, honestly. Sansa's doing... The, asking the right questions. No, I agree. I think, I think they did a really good job setting up a lot of things this episode. Um, I was surprised at how much we got right away. I really liked most of the reunions. I thought Arya and the Hound was fantastic. Arya John was probably like the most emotional one overall. Just seeing like these two curmudgeons, so to speak, like actually be happy was kind of nice. Arya Gendry, I mean, they're they're totally gonna fuck, so that's super cool. Good yeah, thing. definitely good for them. John de- did fuck, uh, I guess, near a waterfall in the snow what, with two dragons watching. They, they could have cut that scene down just a little bit. I got it. You know, it's funny. The show produced, this episode at least, produced a lot of memeable moments. Oh, yeah. Uh, the dragon drove on. Bran! Looking intently. Bran, obviously. But I didn't feel like they were forced at all. No. Which I think is important. A lot of shows, especially now, they can try and strive for the social footprint to keep themselves on the air. Thrones, I think, it clearly felt like a Thrones episode. I saw the identity of the show, the best parts of the show, despite being very close to the end, despite having a lot of the story condensed and only a few plots out there now. So I thought it was very impressive. And, you know, the cool thing about the John aria reunion which everyone was happy to see and as you mentioned yeah really uh really sweet but they do present the tension with sansa and and Dan- daenerys and i think that's gonna keep coming up also something that i don't think anyone had really talked about i certainly didn't think that we didn't discuss it sam learning that his dad and brother died yeah was not on my mind at all and i thought that was really well done and using that to have emotional Sam reveal to John what he and Brand know. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was a great premiere. I was a little bit, I mean, I thought the scene was well acted between Sam and Danny and Jorah, obviously, but I was a little bit like, Sam, you gotta like take a deep breath before you're like, would you have done this? Oh yeah, because you're the fucking claim, you have the claim to the Iron Throne. I was like, dude, take a deep breath. Like, let's talk about, let's talk this out first. And, and that that's also why you needed Bran to, like, be there with him when they talk about this. Like, Bran just being like, nah, can't can't do it. <laughs> Not going to be able to do it. Like, ah, uh, uh, man. And also, shout out the, the Bran Jamie moment again. I thought that was really, really great. Like I said, it wasn't my favorite reunion, but just, like, what a great moment to end the episode on. And, like, the mirroring from the first episode where, you know, the last scene is Jamie pushing him out the window. It's just so excellent. Any other moments or anything that stood out? I mean, you got SEAL Team Greyjoy going in there. Just, I mean, the Golden Company slash Greyjoy Army just taking out that easily. Like, I'm not, I'm not afraid of the Golden Army at this point. Company. Yeah, well, you figure that the Golden Company is, like, hanging in King's Landing, right? The ships are not as guarded. That's That was my take on it. But I like that because they... You mean they're not Got guarding Yara? Free. Yeah, they're not guarding the prize prisoner. Like what? Yara, he's a cocky <laughs> guy, right? But Literally. they got Yara out of the way, off to the Iron Islands. Surprised, never be uh, heard from or harmed at this point. And we're getting Theon back to Winterfell, so we get yeah. good. Uh, not wasting time, but done well. You know, it doesn't feel rushed, but it's efficient. <laughs> I really like the moment where all the Northmen, oh, in the Vale, everyone they're, they're chilling in, in the hall, and with Danny and Sansa and John and all of them. And young Lord uh, Umber, his last his last moments, he's like uh, my my lady, my lord, uh, my queen. Yeah. Like that was hilarious yeah. and really well done. <laughs> to kind of show like how they. I think everybody in that room was kind of feeling like uneasy with the situation. I also thought the scene where they were uh, they found Ned Umber 
pinned up against the wall, you know, the message from the White Walkers, was actually pretty terrifying, I thought. You know, the way that he, like, you see his eyes, like, slowly start glowing, and then he starts screaming. Um, really, really, like, I think set, set the table well there. Um, and the whole thing with Bronn as well. Cersei yeah. wants... Uh, and also, Cersei this episode was just, I thought, fantastic. Just, you know, the the most quotable line, Drake line, that's not actually a Drake line, um, coming out of this, where she says, you know, if you want a whore, go buy one. If you want a queen, earn one. And then just immediately doubles down just fucks him anyway like good for her man i just the whole just the whole episode was really good i really enjoyed it so i'm looking forward to five more yeah crazy only five more feel i feel kind of sad about it honestly like we, we lead up to it so much and it's like oh okay here it is you know the hype was in full force you know actually let me check the ratings while we're talking um just feels like game of thrones content game of thrones awareness had never been higher and i mean everyone's just really excited let's see 17.4 million viewers that's multi-platform record yeah that's a record for thrones anyway really massive obviously that Crazy. doesn't compare to like football right. games but. that's that's an insane amount for a tv show yeah and you know who actually i thought they did the best job with in this episode with aria just in general you know she's standing there at the beginning uh, just part of the crowd which i think kind of speaks to her like faceless man training in a way mm-hmm. where she's just blending in even though she is this like no, part of this noble she's family creeping. but then they kind of brought her humanity out which you haven't seen a lot of in past seasons so i thought they did that in a really really great way so just shout out the right. writers for that they, they handled this episode really really well yeah if you obviously if you watch you can you miss it it's on youtube uh the brief premiere uh preview of the next episode looks like barrack uh, Tormund and crew and Ed, they uh they get back to Winterfell. Yep. I was actually curious about that because they are coming down from the wall at Last Hearth. Last Hearth is still pretty far from the wall. If you Google the map of the the north. It's Last Hearth was like the northernmost castle for any of the northern houses. So they're still pretty far away. But I guess they're gonna sneak past the army of the dead somehow. Beat them there. Uh, there's less of them. I guess they can travel faster. But yeah, I mean, judging by that preview, it looks like we're gonna start to get some conflict early. Definitely. Exciting. Yeah, and also getting the, uh, I think, a Jamie Lannister trial, it seems like, of sorts. Some very interesting stuff this next episode, and then we got the Battle of Winterfell. Lots to be looking forward to. Wild. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, if you're not watching Game of Thrones, and for some reason you're listening to this, too late. You can't catch up, and uh, we don't want you to. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you had a very funny tweet about that. If you're not caught up, it's your fault. I'm sorry. You have 500 days. Anymore. Like, I, I've been watching this show. I started watching this show before season two ended. Like, I, I caught up on season one and then watched the end of season two live. Like, I was on the shit early. Everyone else got in a few years later. That's fine. If you're not in now, <laughs> you made your bed, bro. Sorry. Get spoiled. Like, Kit Harrington's on SNL. Guess he didn't die. Right. That's your fault if you didn't find this out already. <laughs> We're going to wrap up there. What do we got next week? So next week, a little light. Yeah. Um, for right now, anyway. Under the Silver Lake is the only movie that I am aware of. We'll see if it's a wide enough relief. That's a Andrew Garfield film that was pushed back several times finally coming out obviously it's the week before endgame so most movies are clearing out the decks and it's getting out of the way for that so we'll talk about under silver lake if, if we get a chance to see that um similarly not much really new tv obviously we'll catch it we'll touch on thrones again but hannah which came out on amazon prime a few weeks ago we reviewed the premiere on youtube check that out we're gonna touch in on that uh eight episodes season see how see how that ends um then uh, music wise again nothing Super big. We'll see if Kevin Abstract does, in fact, release another AP. Lizzo is releasing yeah. an album. She just performed at Coachella. Janelle Monet was uh, cheering her on. Looks great. I might see Peterloo, which is in limited release, like High Life. But yeah, 
It could be late. Well, so we'll look. We'll find some more stuff to talk about. But I mean, now we're in throne season. It's the next we'll, uh, we'll, we'll five we'll weeks. We'll do some in death predictions for Battle of Winterfell too. So got a lot to talk about. But well, maybe we can do some uh, Endgame ah, predictions ah, next absolutely. week. We'll have some time. Yeah, we'll we'll find some stuff to talk about. So if you want to catch all of it, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to find any way you can subscribe and stay up to date. Yeah, and just protect your neck. Uh, dark days out there. Don't end up like our, uh, our good friend, Lord Ned Umber. Poor little kid, man. <laughs> Tough stuff. Anyways, we'll catch you next week. I was promised elephants. Yeah.